Hello, everyone, and welcome to PwC's Talking Tax Podcast, a forum for us at PwC to share some perspectives on topical tax matters with a particular focus on how these matters impact industrial manufacturers. I'm John Livingstone, PwC's U.S. Industrial Products Tax Leader, and I'm very pleased to host today's discussion. To set a bit of context for these podcasts, this is the first of several podcasts that we are planning to produce while we are operating in this virtual environment. We hope that the podcasts will serve as a bit of a bridge to the day when we can get back to doing our live quarterly webcasts from our Washington, D.C. studios. So thank you for joining us, and we hope you find these podcasts beneficial. Today's topic is the 2020 election and potential implications of the election to industrial manufacturers. And I am pleased to be joined again, as in the good old pre-COVID days, by Scott McCandless and Janice Mays. Both Scott and Janice are veterans of our Talking Tax webcast series and are both senior members of PwC's Washington Tax Policy Team. We have two real pros with us today. Welcome, Scott and Janice. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having us, Jeff. All right, so let's jump in. Perhaps we'll start with a little context. With the election approaching quickly, I think most observers believe the House will likely continue with a Democratic majority. So for purposes of this discussion, let's focus on developments related to the presidency and the Senate. In the discussions that I'm having with clients and other PwC partners serving clients in the sector, there is particular interest in the scenario where the Democrats win the presidency, the House, and the Senate. This is the scenario that tax directors are most concerned about in terms of changes in the tax law that will result in incremental costs to their organizations. So let's spend a few minutes on vice president's proposals. So Janice, if we ended up with the so-called blue wave, can you give a perspective for where a tax bill would fit with then President Biden's priorities and perhaps a time frame when we might see some changes to the tax landscape? Let me start with just noting President Biden is not going to be a tax man. It's not his first love. He loves international issues. He loves a lot of other things first. He has proposed a number of tax increases to pay for domestic priorities that he proposed during the campaign. And that's what the campaign was all about among the Democrats during the primary when they were deciding their candidate. Other candidates had huge domestic programs. He needed theirs. He needed some also, and he needed to pay for them. So he put taxes forward in order to do that. I'm not certain that everything he has on his menu of taxes is completely thought out and ready to be legislated on, but it is an aspirational list. It does show you directions. It shows you that they would like corporations to pay more. They would like wealthy individuals to pay more. They're not certain in the international area that enough is being paid. So there are a lot of kind of different things. They don't like companies zeroing out. So all of that is encompassed in his agenda. But the very first thing he's likely to have to do is an economic stimulus package. He and his campaign have even said that's the most likely first thing because most economists say that our economy will not be robust again at least for another year. And in that context, it's hard to rush in with large tax increases, no matter how much some in the party may want to do that. I think the first package is going to be more about spending. It's going to focus on jobs. It may focus on infrastructure building. Those are viewed as very good jobs. It may focus on climate change and jobs with renewable energy and things in that context and a lot of high-tech stuff along the way. 
There is one precedent that even if they don't get to tax issues till later in the year, that went back to the first of the year. And that is when President Clinton came to office. They raised taxes that year and they went back to January 1. And the court said that that is not unconstitutional. That is not retroactive in the sense of having to be stopped to do that. But most times they would make tax increases effective on the day the leaders announced they were going to do it or on the day the committee acted or the beginning of the next year. So I think it is more likely when they get to these particular issues, they aren't effective at least until late 2021. And at the moment with the economy where it is, I think it is more likely that they may be effective at the beginning of 2022. John, I agree with Janice. I think it's important to note a distinction philosophically on taxes between the Republicans and the Democrats. Republicans tend to see taxes as uh, a policy in and of itself. And I think the TCJA is a perfect reflection of that, where it was a discrete bill specifically designed to reform the tax code to achieve certain policy outcomes. Democrats, on the other hand, tend to see tax policy as a means to a different end, as a way to pay for other policy priorities. So I think the tax items that the Biden campaign and other Democrats have laid out end up serving as something of a menu, if you will, uh, that they might refer to to the extent they seek any pay-fors or offsets for some of the bills that go forward, whether they need it with a COVID relief package because they're worried about the large deficits or if they need it for infrastructure, uh, which might come shortly after. I agree with Janice, though. I think that they're going to find themselves in a difficult place, at least early in 2021 with respect to the economy, and they won't want to be raising taxes in an environment where raising taxes might further diminish the prospects for growth, at least right out of the gate. Great. So Janice, you referenced a few corporate proposals there in your comments. Let's talk a bit more specifically about those proposals in the vice president's plan. At a macro level, and at first glance, the proposal as outlined thus far will hit companies in the sector pretty hard. The vice president's plan includes an increase in the corporate rate from 21% to 28%, which on top of some base broadening provisions that were included in the 2017 Tax Cuts and Job Act is a meaningful increase. Additionally, the proposal includes an increase in the cost of the guilty provisions, including an increase in the guilty tax rate from 10.5% to 21%, country by country ETR measurement, and the elimination of the deemed returned attributable to qualified business asset investment, the so-called QBI income exemption to guilty. Again, this is a potentially significant tax increase to companies in the sector. On the flip side, the proposal is silent on changes to the current beneficial FDII provisions, though there is some concern in the sector about potential reductions to the FDII benefit in a Biden administration. And there is some broad discussion in the vice president's plan to provide a credit for companies that expand manufacturing capacity in the U.S. So recognizing that predicting how this might turn out in this scenario is challenging to say the least. What do you think about these proposals becoming law? And what do you recommend companies do to try and mitigate their impact? Well, let's start first with rates. There are a lot of companies that I think would suffer under 28% rate. And those companies that did end up with the base broadeners touching them, I think would suffer even more. Obama had a 28% rate in his 2016 budget, his last budget. Back then, though, remember, it was a tax cut. It was before the 2017 tax legislation cut the rates. It was a comfortable place for Biden to go in terms of his proposals because it was something he had already stood behind. And back in 2016, the administration's view at that time was this was what domestic companies were telling them they could live with. They were saying we would like more. Remember how everybody sort of started thinking of lower and lower and lower rates 
as the years went on. And this is where it was in 2016. So he's got that to stand behind. But the question is, can he do that in the context of increasing rates? I think it's hard to get to 28%. I think even with a Democratic sweep, I look back at three things that tell me I think it will be capped at 25 if they make it that high. One is in 2015 and 16, the Democrats worked with Republicans over in the Senate Finance Committee, the Tax Writing Committee in the Senate, to build a bipartisan tax reform proposal. And they were in agreement generally across the spectrum that 25 was the highest rate they would want to consider, and they might go lower than that. In 2018, the Democrats, before that midterm election, put out an infrastructure package where they wanted to pay for the package, and they thought they could go to 28%, and they couldn't agree among themselves to go to 28, and they ended up at a 25% corporate rate proposal to pay for the beloved infrastructure. And one more thing, Ron Wyden has introduced two big tax reform bills. In both of those, he has a 24% rate for corporations. So I think that particular issue is going to be hard for them to achieve the full value of what they've asked for. In the international world, I think it's murkier, at least for me to kind of know where they're going to go. Democrats have heard from companies that the 2017 provisions don't work exactly right or arbitrary, and they haven't necessarily focused on which of the pieces there don't focus the most. They know they want some kind of a minimum tax on worldwide income. They want it on domestic income too. They want companies to pay something. It's kind of the fair share sort of thought they're having these days. But they also want companies headquartered in the U.S. They don't want them inverting to other countries. They also want manufacturing in the U.S. And they they have a hard time believing that the Republicans in 2017 made companies necessarily pay more. They're going to, they have a learning curve here. And that leads me to say, this is the very place that business can make a difference. You know, the guilty provisions are there as placeholders at the moment. They think they want to look at the international stuff altogether and see if they can develop something different. I view guilty as a fallback because I think that's going to be hard for them to figure out all of those specifics. And maybe they keep the skeleton of what they have today, do some fine tuning. The main thing they don't like about it was they weren't involved in the making of it. And so they've got to kind of get themselves comfortable. But this is the time to build relationships with Democrats and Republicans on the Hill. I think you have a story to tell, especially if you suffered those base broadeners earlier. But the story is don't get in the weeds on all the technical stuff with Congress. Do that with their staff. Their staffs are ready and want to be helpful. But tell them what your bottom line is. Tell them about your competition. And especially this coming year, tell them about jobs. If you can show that these tax increases are going to shrink jobs in the U.S., I think you have an absolute story to tell because the stimulus, all things, I mean, look at what's happened to jobs in America. They are going to want to fix that. And that is part of the story I think people can tell them. Great, Janice. Thank you. So, Scott, let's spend a few minutes discussing another possible election outcome, specifically where we end up in a divided government scenario. Is there any appetite in that scenario for incremental corporate tax legislation? And maybe to focus the question a bit further, currently, two very significant issues facing most companies in the sector are rules that take effect in 2022, specifically the R&D capitalization rule and the elimination of depreciation and amortization as an addback to taxable income for purposes of measuring taxable income in the interest deductibility rules under 163J. Mindful that the country has just been through a significant disruption due to COVID, and the government has spent a lot of money to try and provide relief, 
In a divided government scenario, how would you handicap movement on those provisions or corporate tax more broadly? John, it's a great question, and I'm glad you brought it up because I think this is something that is often overlooked as we're approaching the election and we're very focused on the uh, corporate tax proposals that the Biden campaign has laid out quite justifiably. But behind the scenes, there are exactly as you laid out those two uh, very significant changes set up in TCJA, which will occur automatically and would require affirmative steps by Congress to change or to alter that outcome. And I don't think they're very much on the radar yet. So Janison mentioned the education process that has to go on. I think companies have quite a, a steep climb ahead of them to make sure that Congress is not only aware of these prospective changes, but also willing to address them. There was something that happened uh, with the last COVID relief package that was enacted that has me a little bit concerned that uh, there might not be a great environment for considering stopping the impending 163J interest limitation change or the, the capitalization of the research expense. And that was with regard to the net operating loss provision, the NOL provision that was added as part of the phase three COVID relief package. That was deemed fairly non-controversial and it was non-controversial, at least it seemed to be that way, uh, because for a long time, both Democrats and Republicans have looked to an NOL uh, expansion as one of the many tools in the toolkit to which they can turn when they're looking for business liquidity or uh, economic stimulative measures. And it didn't seem like it was all that big of a ripple in the pond. Turns out that it was. Uh, after it was enacted, it suddenly started to become pilloried as a giveaway to big business. And this is not something that just happened over the spring or summer, although it was part of what troubled the phase four COVID relief conversations. Anytime that uh, the phase four COVID relief package turned to tax issues, uh, the tax issue conversation revolved around, well, we don't want another NOL situation to occur. So we need to make sure that we have broad bipartisan list of co-sponsors before we're going to jump off into any tax provisions again. And it came up again recently. As you know, there's been an on again, off again attempt to start some kind of COVID phase four relief package in the last couple of weeks. And Speaker Pelosi herself was criticizing the NOL provision, again, characterizing it as, as kind of a giveaway to big business. I think that caricature of a provision that is typically seen as innocuous, like NOL, expansions in a stimulative bill like the last COVID relief was, paints a potentially troubling picture for the prospects to keep the DAW from going away and the EBITDA metric in the 163J equation. Although the research issue might be a little more easily solved just because there is already and has been for a long time broad bipartisan support for research activity in the United States. But I think companies have a big lift ahead of them. And even if the election resulted in exactly the same status quo we have now, you would still have that headwind and a, and a big lift ahead to try to keep that change from happening. 2021 is going to be a very active tax year, even if all we're doing is debating the impending TCJA changes. I think Scott is absolutely right. And I'm worrying about the same end of year event kind of getting in the way of things. The one thing I'll say on R&D, I agree it's, it is more bipartisan. But in addition, with a new Biden administration talking about doing so much high tech stuff in the context of infrastructure and in climate change and other things, I think there's a very good argument to be made. Why would you, on the other hand, leave R&D and make it harder to do R&D while you're doing these other things. But there are heavy lifts ahead. <laughs> Nothing is an easy path right now. Great, great. So, so tax policy, as we've discussed, is clearly an area of interest for our clients. And as you have both mentioned on the podcast, there are certainly other issues at stake in this election that can represent potential challenges and perhaps opportunities for our clients. Scott, let's start with trade policy. During the last few years, we have seen a more muscular U.S. trade policy stance relative to China and even Europe. And we have, of course, also seen the passage of the USMCA. Given where we are, how do you see the election impacting the current trade policy dynamic? 
A great question. I'm glad you brought up trade. This is a big deal too, but I, I see less daylight between the potential Trump second term and potential Biden administration than I do between them on taxes. I think that China has started to occupy a bit of a position in the political rhetoric of the United States, at least from a political perspective, uh, that NAFTA used to. Now we've had NAFTA replaced by USMCA. USMCA, frankly, came in with a fairly strong foundation, 385 votes in the House, 89 votes in the Senate, frankly, a more stable foundation than NAFTA had. So that seems to be likely a relatively quiet area of trade for the next couple of years, the USMCA. However, China has now taken the place of the rhetorical punching bag, if you will. And I think politicians from both sides of the aisle feel comfortable getting up and uh, either blaming things on China or saying indirectly towards China that things need to come back to the United States. And I think we'll see that for some time. And I think that what, what that creates is if you have a Biden administration, they will not want to be seen or perceived as being soft on China. They will not want to repeal, at least immediately, the tariffs that have been put in place. Now, they may do some other things around the periphery. They may make the uh, exemption system easier at USTR. I haven't heard that from the campaign, but that might be one way in which they try to ease some of the pressure without looking like they're giving in on, on tariffs to China. And they might also, and I think this is much more likely, will try to seek partnerships with allies to present a more unified rather than a unilateral approach towards China. But I think that's all incrementalist. I don't think that's immediate. I think these are things that will take time. Janice said much earlier in our conversation with you that Biden as a, as a person, his own personal interests are much more on the international. And I think he'll be very interested in engaging international partners to build those bridges to try to create a more unified front with regard to China. But that, again, is not something that will happen overnight. Uh, and therefore, I think we're going to be in a bit of a status quo with regard to China tariffs. Now, I, I do think that the US-UK FTA, the free trade agreement, talks will continue apace. I think that they've already had a very good launch and we could be on track to seeing US-UK deal sometime in 2021. Of course, UK has its own issues with regard to closing out Brexit in its EU negotiations, so they're not focused on the US, but that has the prospect for being a potential positive change. But in the meantime, I see a fairly status quo environment. So I've been cautioning companies with which we speak not to get too eager or too anticipatory about the prospect for moving away from the tariff situation. I think it will be with us for a while longer until the Biden administration and its talks with allies might figure out a different path. Great. An area of potential opportunity for companies in our sector would be an effort to make significant investments in the country's infrastructure stock. This is an area where it is often said that the two parties should be able to come together, but so far, not yet, at least not in any meaningful way. Janice, you mentioned infrastructure earlier in the discussion. How do you see the election impacting the country's approach to this issue? I think no matter who's the president, at some point they want to get infrastructure done. <laughs> president Trump has said he does. Potential President Biden very much does. Members of Congress are frustrated that for years now they've talked about infrastructure and they've kind of kicked the can down the road, so to speak, because they couldn't find a way to pay for it that they could all be comfortable with. And many of them feel the country's getting further and further behind on infrastructure consequently. I think if it is a President Biden and it is a sweep, I expect that first stimulus bill to have a lot of infrastructure pieces in it and more broadly than just roads and bridges. I mean, I think water projects, I think broadband things, almost anything you can call infrastructure, they will try to find a way to put that in. And that, again, will be all about jobs. They're going to really focus on jobs. It may, in fact, be the place where either of them pulls in their Build It in America items, kind of the changes to the supply chain that they both are interested in trying to do, sort of pull that in with the jobs that that might create here. In that particular aspect of it, I'm not certain I think they're ever going to do enough 
to make somebody want to build a $3 billion plant here that they don't have here today. But I think they want to move in that direction. So infrastructure is long favored. Their frustration is about to boil over. And I think that they will continue to try to find a way to get there and get there in a big way probably not paying for it if it's part of that. And that getting around the thing that's been their stumbling block, you know, the gas tax or what do you replace it with the gas tax. Right now, even though deficits are growing with low interest rates, fewer on the Hill, there are those that care, but fewer on the Hill care right now, as long as our investors are buying our government debt and the American public doesn't really care. They want some of these things done. So we'll see where we go. But I'm like the Energizer Bunny on infrastructure. I've thought it would happen, thought it would happen. And I'm still there encouraging it to happen. All right, Janice. I love the optimism. Finally, Janice, there's been much in the news related to the introduction of new legislation related to various environmental initiatives. And again, you've referenced that topic earlier in this discussion. Same broad question to you. Where do you see this priority fitting in relative to the different election outcomes we've talked about? I see it for Democrats, if, if they have run the table, as among those things, you would see pieces of it in that early stimulus package. It's not going to be as much as the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party wants, I think. I do not think it will include a carbon tax to offset costs of it. I do think it will include things to try to bring down the carbon footprint, but probably focuses a lot on a lot of it may be done through regulatory changes from what has happened in the Trump administration to what might happen in a Biden administration. I think you might see more renewable energy incentives. I do think it will be more along the incentive side, the carrot side, than it will be on the stick side, at least early in this particular Congress. But it is a place that a new President Biden can do something for the progressive wing of his party. And not only that wing, but the young people. This is kind of being led by the young people. And it it may take pressure off some of the tax increases and some of the other things that they want. If he's able to find a broad spectrum here of things that, that they can achieve together. But the, the very first thing, even before this, this economic stimulus package, I'm talking about, Democrats, if they win, are going to have to find a way to govern together. This is a great kind of a segue issue into the progressive side and the more moderate side of the caucus. Are they going to agree with one another to find common ground and have that be what they enact? Are the progressives going to kind of go away as, as the post-Watergate Democrats did? Back in the 70s, if they can't get the whole pie, they sort of ended up with no pie rather than a few slices that might have been achievable. So we have some things to watch early on before any of this can be successful if Democrats do run that table. Well, thank you, Scott and Janice, for your insights and willingness to share your perspectives. It's, it's clear that there's much at stake in the election for companies in the sector. And irrespective of the outcome, the one constant seems to be that given the profile of the sector and the jobs it provides, direct engagement with our elected leaders is likely to serve manufacturers well. Thank again to you both. I will look forward to re-engaging with you after the election. And thanks to all of you for listening today. And we hope to have you join us again for our upcoming podcasts. Take care. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. 
PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.